This podcast was recorded before a live telephone audience. This is Open Line with Michelle Naranjo and Chelsea Sexton, episode one for June 2011. Eric Fitch from Purpose Energy. You can watch and participate live on the first Tuesday of every month at AutolineDetroit.tv. Open Line starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Join in on the call at any time by dialing 1-712-432-0900 and entering PEN-911-633. <laughs> well, everybody, welcome Eric Fitch from um, Purpose Energy, and gosh, I'm Michelle, and of course, Chelsea. <laughs> it's Chelsea. Well, thanks for having me, Miss Motormouth. Hello. So, this is kind of a funny story, Eric. So, I was, you were brought to my attention, because when I was in Detroit the last time, they were filling me full of Magic Hat Number 9 at the Volt Lounge in the Renaissance Center. Nice. And I was going on about Magic Hat Brewery on Twitter, and then MPGO-Matic, um, Dan Gray, who was on the line earlier, he's still listening, uh, was asking about biogas from breweries, and I think it was Evans Premium and Magic Hat that both pointed out to me what you were doing. So you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, you bet. Purpose Energy, we're a biofuels company. And our specialty is converting brewery waste into renewable natural gas. When you brew beer, you make a lot of different waste products. There's a lot of rinse water because it's a batch process. You have to rinse out all the tanks. And there's yeast. You actually end up making sugar water first, and you feed the sugar water to yeast. The yeast turn that sugar water into beer plus a lot more yeast. And you got to figure out how to get rid of that yeast. It's hard to get rid of. And the other thing that you have a lot of... Um, as far as byproducts go, is spent grain. You start off with barley, you kind of wash all of the sugar out of it, but you're left with a lot of cellulose, hemicellulose, and proteins. And for a brewer who wants to make and sell beer, all these byproducts become a nuisance, and they actually become expensive to get rid of. We're offering a different solution for them. If you take all of those things and you put them in our patented bioreactor, we can convert them into renewable natural gas. So not only are we cleaning up those byproducts and making them safe to discharge uh, and inexpensive to discharge. We're also making a fuel out of it, so we kind of get two values for one. The Magic Hat's interesting because Magic Hat, it's about the 40th largest brewery in the United States, located in South Burlington, Vermont, and they are our first customer. We just built our first biogas plant here. I'm, I'm actually in South Burlington right now, and uh, we got our first plant, the first of its type in the world that takes all three byproducts from the brewing industry. That's pretty crazy. They were your first customer? Yeah, they're our first customer. We had this crazy idea. We did a, a pilot down in Florida with a Yingling brewery. Yingling's got a brewery in Tampa. That was in the end of 2007. It was a pretty successful pilot. And after we had the results, we were looking for somebody who'd be our guinea pig, so to speak. And we came and talked to the guys at Magic Hat. They're a pretty progressive brewery. They're actually the largest brewery other than a, a large bud plant in New Hampshire, but the, other than the bud plant, they're the largest brewery within driving distance of my house. So 
seemed like a pretty good fit for us. We talked to them. We told them what we'd done at the pilot and what we thought we could do with their brewery. And they said, sure, you can do that, and you can do it here. What constitutes a big brewery, by the way? I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure a bud plant's pretty big, and a lot of people drink that bud lot. Oh, yeah. Well, Budweiser actually is 50% of the U.S. market. They make about 100 million barrels a year, and they do that in 12 different breweries. Their average size is something like 8 million barrels per year. The, um, and a barrel, is it the same as an oil barrel? No, no, I think an oil barrel is, what, 40, 48 gallons, is that right? A beer barrel is 31 gallons. And the, the metric that most people know is a keg. A 15-and-a-half-gallon keg is actually a half barrel. A long time ago, when you used to have Cooper Smiths making wooden barrels, they were, they were actually 33-gallon barrels for beer. But uh, today, you, know, you, get, you get your half barrels, a 15-and-a-half-gallon, and you can get a quarter barrel, of course, which is a quarter of that, 31 gallons. But um, a big brewery, as far as we're concerned, is something that makes more than 100,000 barrels of beer per year, and there are about 100 of those in the United States. And uh, a big brewery is important because our facility, I mean, it's a, a power plant. It's big. It's expensive. And if you build one that's twice as big, it doesn't cost twice as much. So the bigger you make it, the better the economic return is. And conversely, if you make it smaller, you might not be able to make enough value between the gas and the byproduct remediation to actually um, pay for the equipment. So you need to be at least 100,000 barrels a year for a system like this to make sense. And how much is equipment for them to convert? Well, it depends on the size, obviously. You know, something like Magic Hat, it's um, between 2 and $3 million to put in the facility, and they brew about 180,000 barrels a year right now. If you were to go to a much bigger facility, you could be talking um, between 6 and $10 million for a plant, depending on how big the brewery was. Wow. But you can make a lot of gas. It's, um, I think most people don't know this, but the largest biogas producer in the world is Anheuser-Busch. And they, uh, they make all that biogas just by treating their wastewater. As far as we're concerned, the wastewater is kind of like candy for our digester. It doesn't make a lot of gas. The other things, the spent grain and the spent yeast, that's where all the gas potential comes from. So we can make um, ten times as much gas as what Budweiser makes. So we could help them not only be the largest gas producer, biogas producer in the world, but ten times the largest biogas producer in the world. Wow, Chelsea, this kind of brings me back to, like, the whole VC world that's involved with – the yes. alternative fuels, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we were talking earlier about how enamored the venture capital world is with all things biogas, biofuel, algae, all of those, all of those things. Um, well, tell me about it. Add fear <laughs> to that, and people get really excited. All we need is a little bit of social marketing, and we'd have a home run. Well, I, I think fear is actually the ideal device for social marketing, certainly more attractive than algae. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But the gas, yeah, beer, beer is more fun than algae, isn't it? Nobody likes to oh, clean yeah. their fish tank. Yeah, hey, listen, we get to work at a brewery all day long. And how how bad can that be? How does this help the breweries, like, in terms of their sort of, like, their point system of, like, their manufacturing output? Like, does it, does it affect it, – it probably benefits them, right? Do you mean, like, because as far as the greenhouse gas emissions? 
Yeah. Well, we consider ourselves to be carbon neutral. If you think about it, everything that we're putting into our digester, it was made by a plant and photosynthesis at one point. So the carbon, every atom of carbon that's in our feedstock first came from atmospheric carbon dioxide. So we take it from the atmosphere, grow it in barley, um, pull some of the sugars out to make beer with, and then what's left we put in our digester, and we make methane gas, which is the same thing, the same constituent gas that's in natural gas. And when that eventually gets fired, wherever it gets fired, it's going to revert back to atmospheric carbon dioxide. So it's, it's just a, a short circuit there. We, we consider that to be carbon neutral. That's different from, say, pulling petroleum out of the ground or pulling coal out of the ground and burning it because you'll be taking subterranean carbon and then introducing it to the atmosphere. So you're actually affecting the greenhouse gas concentration. Wait, so it actually is a byproduct methane gas or you're actually using the methane gas? Well, we produce methane. We manufacture methane gas. We take the waste okay. byproduct and we use it to manufacture methane gas. And then the methane gas, since it's the same as is uh, natural gas, you can use it in all the same ways you'd use natural gas. For instance, we can pipe it right into the brewery's boiler and they can use it to make more beer. We, uh, we've got a really big Guascore Genset. It's something that you find, say, in a tractor or a combine. It's a, uh, a Spanish-manufactured inline eight, big inline eight spark ignition engine. And we run the biogas to, to this engine, and it turns a generator, and it can put out 330 kilowatts of power. Uh, Wait, you repurpose a tractor engine? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Actually, we didn't do it. There's a company in Missouri that does this. They bought an old New Holland manufacturing plant, and, and they buy these big engines, and they make their own generators and connect them together. And, and they actually put these on a lot of farms where people have farm digesters that do something similar. We found them, and we had them custom build a, a kit for us. We put it inside of a big ISO container. There's a, um, a big genset in there, uh, the genset being the, the engine and the generator. And we've got a heat recovery skid. We take the heat off the exhaust. We've got a, a recirc loop on the coolant, and we've got a recirc loop on the oil. And we can recover 1.6 million BTUs an hour in heat from the genset while it's operating. We can either use that heat to control the temperature of our digester, or we can use it to preheat the groundwater that's going into the brewery. But I tell you what, that gen that genset it sure purrs like a kitty on the biogas. That's pretty amazing. We I think we have a question from Dan Gray from MPGOmatic.com. Um, ben, you want to let him in? So so Eric, the the Bob the the biphase orbicular biodigester that if the main purpose is to produce the biomethane, but the, the byproducts are, are, are what types of liquid fuels? Well, we don't make liquid fuels. We make, we make three things. One thing we make is treated water. Um, you know, the, the wastewater that comes into our plant, it's not something you could discharge um, you know, to the ground. You couldn't discharge it to a waterway. And you really couldn't even discharge it to a wastewater treatment plant because it would be too expensive. But we reduce a property called the oxygen demand and, and clean the water. So we're producing treated water. We're also producing a solid component. The solid component, uh, it's got a lot of different um, uses. It can be used as a bedding for livestock. 
It can be used as an organic fertilizer. You can land apply that for a, a soil nutrient program. And you could also use it as a feedstock for a biomass plant. And for reference, if you said you were going to do a project at one of these 8 million barrel a year breweries, you'd make about 10% of the feedstock for a 60 megawatt biomass power plant. And the third thing we make is the, uh, the biogas. And the biogas, it's, it's not liquid unless you were going to cryogenically cool it and compress it. Um, and you could, you could essentially make liquefied natural gas or LNG with, with our product. Uh, you can make CNG. There's a lot of CNG actually in this region. People use it for bus transport. We thought about whether or not that would be an appropriate thing for, for um, trucking distribution if there was a leak in the biogas or CNG. But those are the three things. Someone's getting attacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were actually discussing that um, recently, uh, earlier, about the uh, sort of the Northwest like CNG sort of movement. What were you going to say, Chelsea? Oh, I was going to actually ask what he estimates the payback period is on some of the, you know, if it costs a couple million dollars to put it into a plant, you know, the greenhouse gas benefits and environmental stuff aside, what do you estimate is the payback period for these companies? Yeah, that's a good question. People, they're not really motivated necessarily by doing things environmentally, but they are motivated by the economics. If you look at a project, the, um, a medium-sized project, it, it, and, and, if it's, and this also depends on what the waste treatment charges are for a given location because we produce value in waste treatment and in the fuel value. But the simple payback being how much cost can we avoid for the plant and how much did the plant cost, it, it can be two years or less. Uh, once you start taking operating costs out of it and uh, things of that nature, what we're targeting is something like a 25% IRR for our customer partners, and, and that would generate a pretty good business for Purpose Energy. Yeah, I think Ben and Jerry should stick it in their trucks. You know, Ben and Jerry's actually has a digester. They have one that treats some of their low-strength wastewater, the, the clean-and-play stuff. I'm not right, surprised. I see on one of your film, your uh, clips, film clips that you guys have a... Sorry, you have a yogurt company that's interested? Yeah, you know, there's an interesting movement. People are starting to switch to Greek yogurt. The only difference between regular yogurt and Greek yogurt is this stuff called acid whey. You ever eat from the tub of yogurt and then you put it back in the fridge and you pull it out and it has that clear liquid on top? Right. That clear liquid, that's the acid whey. If you were to take the regular yogurt and spin it in a centrifuge, you'd separate the, um, the, the stuff that looks like opaque solids from this clear liquid. And then you'd end up with Greek yogurt and, of course, acid whey. And there's a, there's a plant that's um, recently been installed in Vermont, and I think they're the fourth largest Greek yogurt manufacturer in the United States. And they've got a lot of acid whey they need to deal with. Right now they're just trucking it off-site, and we're, uh, we're working on a proposal to help them treat that acid whey. And what happens when they truck it off-site? Where does uh, it go? It goes in a manure pit. It goes in a manure <laughs> pit for the farmers. So you think about a farmer that has maybe 100 or 150 head of cattle, which is kind of what the Vermont demographic is like. They're, they're pretty small herds, and they're looking for places where they can sell their milk. If a yogurt plant comes in and locates right near their farm, well, now all of a sudden they have a place where they can sell all the milk that they make and more. But in order to do that, somebody has to remove the acid whey from the yogurt plant. 
So they pull in with their milk trucks, unload their milk, and then they pull over to where the waste tank is. They take the acid way and they truck the acid way back to the farm and they put it in their manure pit. It's problematic for the farmers because there's a limit to how much they can land apply and during what seasons they can. And they have to obviously worry about um, all of the manure that their, that their cattle produce. But essentially, uh, it's, it's if we take this acid way, then we can sell our milk. And if we don't, then we can't. So the um, motivation is certainly there. Well, wouldn't it be better if you took that ass away and made a significant amount of biofuel with it, though? Is it enough that you could actually power some, some? I mean, a significant amount of vehicles? Oh, yeah. Well, here's here's the metric that I think about for our Magic Hat installation. Your average house is going to use less than 10 kilowatts of power, and our genset can do 330 kilowatts. So you're looking at a significant number of homes. Actually, let me take that back. Your average house can do like one kilowatt, and we can do 330 kilowatts. So, you know, hundreds of homes we can power with this brewery waste. Kelsey, you may be able to help me with this in California, but someone told me recently when I was up at <clears throat> staying with them in Mill Valley in, in Northern California that they, they had their both their house in Mill Valley and their Stinson Beach home, like, covered with solar cells, and there was this whole thing of being off the grid – but then they realized after they did it that the power companies are not actually um, able to take the power past the next person on the pole from you if you are sending them 300 kilowatts and they're only using 10, they'll use the 10 and the 200 just goes away. Yeah, it's, a little, right? it's a little different here. At Magic Hat, we, um, we actually, Purpose Energy owns the plant, the biogas plant. And we can't sell power to Magic Hat. If we did, power is regulated. We'd have to become a publicly regulated utility. The overhead associated with that is just too much, yeah. I mean, even just the words sound bad. So what we end up doing instead is we have a deal with the local power company, and we've put in the infrastructure to be able to tie into the grid. And We're kind of an independent power producer, and we sell electricity right to Green Mountain Power. Yeah, I mean, the, the issues, as I understand them here, are not the utilities' capacity to take the energy. Um, there are certainly office issues. So you can't, you know, it, especially with it lacking um, policy to support it, you don't get credit beyond what you use. So if you only use 10 and you give them 20, you only get credit for 10. And once you get down to zero, you get nothing beyond that here. Uh, but I've not heard anything about not being able to actually take the electricity. How it gets redistributed may vary depending on the utility itself and then here at least and, and this will spread elsewhere but and it's starting with cars and i think it'll evolve especially around solar um, in fact there's legislation right now to not have anybody who provides electricity for the purpose of fuel be considered a regulated utility so it exempts everybody that's trying to do electricity for public charging or for uh, multifamily dwellings or Google offering it at their workplace or whoever. I mean, they're, they're really, really broad in how it's being defined. So right now it's within the scope of vehicles themselves. If you're using electricity as a fuel, you're not a utility. You can sell it. You can give it away. You can do whatever you want. You're completely unregulated, assuming the bill passes, and it looks like it will. Uh, whether that's a good idea is a whole separate conversation. But that will also, you know, once California sets that bar, I think it'll, it'll migrate east, uh, and then it will end up translating into some of these other uses besides vehicles. 
Yeah, I wonder if we could make a big char- or a car charging bank in our parking lot. People from yeah. all around come and park and charge their cars, and we'd be able to charge a higher tariff for it. You could. Um, I mean, you certainly could provide the service. Whether or not it's a monetized service remains to be seen. For 15 years in California, the public chargers have all been free. And it's because the slide owners preferred it that way, not because they couldn't charge money, but they considered it a marketing expense and they'd rather have the lead points and brownie points and whatnot. Um, We don't yet have enough vehicles to support monetization, but there are companies that are trying. You know, the the vehicle for... um for selling the power that you were talking about, that sounds to me like something that they call a, um, a net metering program. And in net metering, you can make the wheel spin backwards until zero. So you right, but you need a for everything you've made. But we did yeah. something a little bit different than that. We did a power purchase agreement. So we've got an, an agreement with the local utility as if we're you know a 60 megawatt power plant, but we're not. We're a third of a megawatt. Yeah, on a on an individual scale, it uh, requires generally feed-in tariffs or some sort of policy like that. The, the issue is not making the meter spin backwards; it's what happens once it gets to zero. So, in right. the absence of being somebody large that could do a PPA, it's how you know it, they're they're sort of different scale conversations. But similar yeah, of course, that's so regional; it's very state dependent. Right, and there are over three thousand utilities in the country. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. You you know what's interesting? When when we started this, we knew we were going to make a lot of biogas, and we had to think about what we wanted to do with it. We know it's got value, but what's the best value for it? The the thing I think that um, makes the most sense for us is to be able to replace boiler fuel. Boiler fuel is largely unregulated, and if we give that to the brewery or whoever our customer is, maybe it's a, a yogurt plant or a distillery, then the value of it, it's, it's the retail value of that fuel. So that's always a good option. But the, the limit there with a boiler system, you know, they have a demand for steam and then they don't have a demand for steam. They don't really run continuously all the time, or at least the flame front isn't always a continuous level. And we're going to have times where we're making biogas because we make it continuously, and there's just no use for it at the boiler. And we thought, well, we could flare it and get no value for it. That didn't seem like a good idea. We could scrub it, and we could actually deliver it right back into the gas pipeline. That seemed like a pretty good idea. We thought we could compress it and have a CNG fueling station or even store it and and try to load balance with the boiler at the brewery. That seemed like a good idea. But people are really motivated to do renewable electricity projects, so much so that there's a lot of financing that's available for renewable electricity projects. And and that's really the thing that put us over the edge. If we were grid-connected, then that made us eligible for a significant amount of project finance for for the plant that we built. And that's, that's what ultimately made the decision for us to buy the genset and produce power. That's interesting. Given the the different renewable portfolio standards, I'm not entirely surprised. Yeah, there's there's no there's nobody really um, motivated to do a renewable biogas project. There's no financing incentive. There's no tax incentive. And the biofuel, it's you know it's got considerable amount of value. But if it's not a liquid fuel, the the caller 
I think his name was Dan that asked a question before, asked what liquid uh, biofuel we were producing or not. If we were making a liquid biofuel like ethanol that you could put into a vehicle, well, you know, now all of a sudden the, um, the federal government's got a lot of subsidy available. But were you making renewable natural gas? Not so much so. So we were talking about that a little bit earlier, the, the current enthusiasm politically for natural gas, certainly regionally, but also on the Hill. Are you guys at all sort of working with the traditional natural gas folks at all to get lumped in with whatever incentives they are able to procure, like in Utah and the various places it is very popular? We, we're not really politically active. Um, you know, for the most part, our projects make sense economically on their own. We don't really need the subsidy. It's nice. We don't need it, so we can move forward. One, one uh, group that we pay attention to is the American Biogas Council. It's a new organization. There are, I would guess, probably 20 different members. And technically, we're not a member, but uh, we've been involved since the ABC was formed. And they they have some lobbyists in DC that uh, that are working on trying to come up with some um, some biogas credits or you know certainly some tax credits. Um, but, but we don't really participate as Purpose Energy. We're still a young company. We don't have a lot of resource for for things like lobbyists or um, a lot of touch in Capitol Hill. We do keep when in touch with our start? local senators. I'm sorry? When did you guys start? The company was formed in 2007. That is young. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those young fledgling MIT startup companies. <laughs> Eric, does the digester have to be located next to a brewery, or, or can it be done remotely? It doesn't have to be, but it makes a lot of sense. One of the things about a digester, it likes to operate around body temperature, around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. There's bacteria that actually are the worker bees, and bacteria, they like to be around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Interestingly, if you look at all of the stuff that comes out of the brewery, some of it comes out cold, some of it comes out hot. If you average it, it comes out of the brewery right around 100 degrees. If you're local, if you're if you're right adjacent, then when everything hits your digester, it's the right temperature, and you don't have to use a significant amount of energy to heat the digester all the time. If you were to chuck it off-site, then you'd lose some, some thermal um, heat during that transportation and then you'd have to scavenge some of your gas that you produce in order to, to heat it back up. The other thing that's really key is trucking anything is expensive. And if you're located on site, you can pump it. Pumping is cheap by, uh, by relative standards. So putting it right on the brewery site is pump things underground. We, we dug some trenches and put some pipes underground, and, uh, and we pump it right from the brewery into our digester. But uh, th So the problem... I would see with a lot of these microbreweries is that it, the microbreweries in the middle of a town, like I'm here in, in outside of Princeton and there's the, the triumph brew pub and they're right in the middle of town and they're, there's no room to put a, a digester next to the building because there's another building on one side, another building on the other side and a parking lot that they're not going to tear up behind it because it's too valuable. So it there, you know, it seems like there may be a, you know, a case to build a, a centralized one in, in in states where there are a number of of microbreweries. I know, you know there's there's one here in Princeton. There's another one in Lambertville down by the Delaware River, about half an hour away. And 
Uh, maybe there's a way to keep things warm in the truck as you're as you're as you're moving it. But here's here's my bigger bigger question: when when these liquid wastes come from come from the brewery, is there still sugar and alcohol in that water? There is. And have I'm sure you've thought about maybe pre-processing it or, or or distilling it to pull the alcohol out beforehand, or would that work against the, the production of methane? You know, there's actually a company that does that. I, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but yeah, it, I know it, Sierra it, Nevada has a system. Yeah. It's a filtration system yeah. that can selectively pass ethanol through the membrane but not water. And they're yeah, able they, to extract ethanol that they can use to fuel their fleets. Yeah, apparently they're using the the e-fuel, some version of the e-fuel microfueler system, and those folks still have a picture of Arnold on the front page. Maybe it's time to take that down. But um, it there's there's alcohol in them their hills. There's a there's there's multiple fuels past what you're what you're doing now. So if you look at hey maybe maybe Bob is is the new uh, super refinery. With a with a service station right in front of it, where people could get their CNG refill, their electric refill, or their E85 refill. So it's the local production of of transportation um, transportation fuel. I've been I've been looking at the the ethanol end of it for 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 months now. And when uh, when your company came up, I I read up and thought, wow, that sounds a lot like what uh, what the farmers are doing with uh, with all the cow manure, and that they're they're producing. Don't mind my dog. That they're producing their own uh, their own uh, electricity. I'll, I'll let your project. dog attack you for a second, Dan. Um, you uh, you guys, you me. have just joined us. We are Chelsea Sexton and Michelle Naranjo from Open Line, and we are live with Eric Fitch from Purpose Energy. If you want to call in, please go to bit.ly forward slash Open Line, and the number is there with the pin for you to call in, and uh, you can push star six to ask a question. So um, for, so far, it sounds to me like microbreweries in the middle of urban centers should probably have a laundromat next door that they can, like, power the dryers. Uh, yeah, the microbreweries themselves, we talked about how there's a, a volume limit. Microbreweries by themselves wouldn't make sense, and you bring up a good point. Not all breweries are going to have real estate available. With this with this plant that we put in at Magic Hat, um, you know, it's it's a few thousand square feet in the backyard, and if there's not a few thousand square feet available for a digester and a, a pump house, then it's obviously um, it's not an option. It's a non-starter. But I, th- I think you also bring up a good point about the ethanol. There's no reason why you couldn't run these these two processes in series and first extract the residual alcohol that comes out in the waste, especially in the in the spent yeast, before it goes into our digester. We can obviously make uh, methane gas out of that, but the ethanol by itself is more valuable than than the um, you know per unit of um, of energy because it's it's liquid, it's transportable. So if you could first implement the system similar to the one you described at uh, at Sierra Nevada, then you could do something like what you suggested, and you can have an ethanol fueling station, a CNG fueling station, and a power up station all in one location. And it's a good opportunity for collaboration. Get Ben Kostla on the line. 
Well, Eric, I'm going to ask you this. Like, this is going to be completely probably off base, but you've been in a few startups, right? Oh, yeah. I've been in everything from my favorite one, before, <laughs> except for this one. My favorite one, we used to take these uh, smart materials that, that dampen the twin tails on fighter jets. We put them on skis to dampen the vibration on skis. Oh, wow. That one was pretty cool. I, uh, after 9-11, started a company with some guys from MIT. We did uh, bio-warfare hazard detection, and we got our system to work pretty well, but I always think of it like this. We trained a pony and took it to the derby, and so did a bunch of other people, and there were some faster ponies. So that one didn't, that one didn't pan out, but it was a pretty cool company. Well, it's interesting because you come from the MIT world, which, of course, I think, didn't MIT produce the A123 project? For the battery yeah, technology? Batteries, that's right. Yeah. I mean, so can you talk a little bit about, like, the role that you see in startups and angel funding and venture capital and all that stuff in the automotive industry? In the auto industry? Well, let's see. My auto industry knowledge is really limited to a few years I spent in Dearborn with Ford. And there wasn't Oh, the real past comes out. <laughs> the dark years. The dark years. Yeah, you know, if you think about what's going on with with the automotive industry, we're, you know, we're going to see a, a transfer to fuel efficiency, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there in the in the startup community, and I, I think there's going to be a, a, a transition to different fuel sources. Uh, for example, A123 and using a battery powered car, or people working in the in the hydrogen fuel space. And I think that smaller companies may be coming with academic roots where people aren't so pressured for the bottom line while they're doing their research. I think that can evolve into um, into viable companies. And, and A123 is a great example. I mean, those guys started off making batteries, and their first customer was DeWalt Power Drills. That's how they got their foot in the door. And And look what they're doing now. Well, I guess, to, you know, to broaden it beyond the auto industry a little bit, um, maybe the role of startups against what are really large incumbent industries. So whether it's going up against the LGs of the world making batteries or the energy industry, um, how do you see a startup sort of going into something like that that has a pretty entrenched system already and a pretty high cost bar to, to entry? Here's the role of a startup company. Years ago, people compete to make the best typewriter, and nobody even owns a typewriter anymore. It's It's been completely eliminated by word processors. Somebody invented a computer with a word processor, and the typewriter's gone. That's the role of the startup company. You know, people are going down a path, and there's a lot of money and a lot of momentum that's invested in trying to make incremental improvements, but the startup is trying to do something completely different. But what if we didn't do this the same way? What if we didn't make an incremental improvement? What if we tried to do something that was radically different? That's where the startup can play a role. And you, everybody's imagination put together can come up with so many different ideas for every different industry. And if you have the right team, if you have the right concept, then it's, uh, it's possible to go and find funding. And, you know, in 2008 there was a... Um, you know, a pretty decent hit to our economy, and funding wasn't necessarily available, wasn't readily available. But, I, I, you know, that's, at least that's the rumor. In my experience, though, 
I think the funding is there. I think people are just a little bit more selective, but the funding is there. People pulled their money out of the economy, and they're looking for other opportunities. And if you've got a good idea and you've got a good team, then it's just a matter of networking to the right individuals that, that can provide that capital. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up about like something like a typewriter. I know that someone, and it might be an urban myth, but someone recently was telling me the story of um, how Westinghouse, I think it was, that they were telling me had a program where everybody worked four days a week back in the old days. And the fifth day, everyone still came to work, but they were allowed to work on their own projects, only the company owned the patent of whatever they ended up developing. So they were working like the, with the best and the brightest engineers to develop these amazing ideas that people always wanted to try to do, and now that's become privatized. You know, the there's another company it, out right? there. There's another company out there that people are more familiar with than Westinghouse. Google has the same program. That's a great idea. It's a way to foster innovation and the, uh, the whole startup mentality within a larger organization. I think that's where a significant amount of innovation comes from. When people feel like they own it, it's kind of like children, I think. If you're watching somebody else's children, that's a lot different than watching your own. You, you put a lot more care into your own, and, and you're willing to stick with them, even, um, even in the downtimes. Companies like that, it's your own company. When, when things turn south, you don't run. It's your company. You have to stick by it, just like family. And giving people that ownership over an idea it's uh, it's empowering and, and it um, it'll help you get through some of the, the issues that you encounter along the way. Nothing ever ends up the way you start. And when I started this company, I really thought it was a, a renewable energy company, and that that seemed pretty sexy at the time. And four years into it, five years into it, I realized, man, we're a wastewater treatment company. I have to swim in artificial feces sometimes. It's um, you know, it's not that glamorous and it's not that sexy. <laughs> you have big old waiter boots, you mean? <laughs> I have I have gone scuba diving inside of our digester before, and it, it takes. <laughs> oh my it takes God! Time. It brings new meaning to swimming in it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got clothes that have had the same smell for two years, and it won't go out. I just kind of reserve them for some of the dirty things, and uh, it, it really it takes like a week to get it off of your skin. My wife hates it, but it's just one of those things you have to do. There was this one time when uh, this is a funny story. When you start up an anaerobic digester, you have to seed it with bacteria from another digester. We don't have to, but it makes the process, you know, it cuts a year out of the single time, so you do it. And we got a bunch of uh, digester waste from, a, there's a local municipal wastewater treatment plant that has an anaerobic digester. And we took their stuff and, and we put it into into our digester. And there, there was this um, premix tank before our digester it has a, a place where we can pump off from a truck. So we pumped it all in there, and then we pumped it into our digester. Well, there was a filter basket in there, and you just would not believe the things that came out of that filter basket. Just nasty, nasty. Like sometimes you could get a five-pound lot of condoms out of that filter basket. When we started to pump this tank down, uh, we started to get this filter basket clogged with human hair on a regular basis. And eventually we decided, you know what, we just don't want to pump this tank down too much because it keeps clogging our filter basket with its, with its hair and it's nasty. So we decided to always leave about three feet of 
of liquid in this tank to avoid that problem. Um, at the same time, we were trying to dose this thing with uh, a chemical called calcium hydroxide, which helps us um, control the pH of the digester because the bugs like to, to um, they, they thrive better at a neutral pH. So we've got all this calcium hydroxide going into it, and you know, we know there's a bunch of hair in there. And after operating like this for five months, we realized that we needed to actually drain this tank. We tried to pump it out, and we pumped out as much as we could until we kept getting it clogged with this, this pubic hair. And, and one time we actually had to pull the, the cover off of this tank and go in and investigate. We looked in, and it was pitch black. There's no light that goes into it except for the manway that we, that we took off. It was pitch black, and we took a rake and pushed it out there, and we pulled some of this hair. And what we had was um, about eight inches of this lime, which is really white. It looks like whipped cream, covered by about four inches of, uh, of human hair. And uh, my buddy who was with me, he looked at it, and he's like, oh, Dude, I am never eating shepherd's pie again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but so those, are, those are the kinds of things you get into. It's not really a sexy business. It's, uh, it's so something it kind of, it kind of like makes um, petroleum fuel look clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we're not going to use Essex Junction's uh, effluent to seed our digester again. Well, we talked about so the beer and the, and the and then yogurt, of course, and Ben and Jerry's is doing their things. What what other industries would be primed for this? You know, there there's um, ethanol manufacturing is actually very prime. Ethanol manufacturing is not that different from beer. You start off making beer and then you distill the beer to get the ethanol. All the byproducts are the same. You got rinse water, you got yeast. And, uh, and you've got the spent grain. And ethanol can be anything from transportation ethanol to bourbon. We've had a few calls from uh, large ethanol producers and toured their plants, and we're trying to figure out if we can make the economics favorable there. And certainly in the bourbon industry, we can do something a lot better than what they do with their waste right now. Um, and, and both of those industries, like the beer industry, they consume a lot of energy that you can pump right back into the plant. But doesn't ethanol get, like, really political? I mean, like, just when you're talking about, like, corn production, like, if you were to start going for some of that stuff, like, people, I know people that are vehemently, like, anti-E85, right? So, well, I think, I think the ethanol um, industry is here to stay. We just saw Congress increase the, um, the allowance from 10 to 15% in the states. And we've got really three giants out there. You've got Archer Daniels and Valero and um, third one's not coming to me. The Poet is the biggest. And uh, they have a lot of byproduct. And right now, really, the only use they have for the byproduct is to feed it cattle. But at some point, you're going to have more of this byproduct than you have cattle. What are you going to do with it? That's a risk for them. If you can't landfill it. It's too expensive to landfill it. I don't think treating the byproduct is really that political. The ethanol component might be. What I worry about more about the ethanol industry is the pinch between the price of corn and the, and the price of a barrel of oil. Right now, a barrel of oil over 100 bucks, and um, 
and the price of corn is what seven and a half or eight. It's a pretty narrow margin. If you, if you can split those up a little bit more, then ethanol makes a little bit more sense. But really, the value of your ethanol unsubsidized, you know, it's as much as you buy your gasoline for, so it's four bucks a gallon. If your if your input cost, if the corn cost continues to go up, then you just might not be able to make ethanol four bucks a gallon. In which case, of course, you'd go to the bourbon industry where you can sell it for $30 a fifth. <laughs> exactly. Isn't it kind of amazing how expensive <clears throat> it is comparatively? You know, I heard this story one time, and uh, I, can't, I can't validate it, but I heard it from a pretty reliable source. He said that a lot of the vodka that you buy is just ethanol produced by people like Cario. And then they add, so, so when you produce the ethanol, you end up with something that's 199 proof, right? It's, it's pure ethanol. And then they add water to it to get it down to 80 proof or whatever they're selling it for. And then they start adding flavoring. So now you've seen over the last decade a, a huge um, transition in the, in the vodka market to having currant flavored or um, all kinds of different flavorings added to your vodka. And that's just for market separation because otherwise they're all just, Cargill ethanol with local water added to them and put in a bottle. So they're buying this stuff at $4 a gallon, and then they're selling it at $30 a fifth or you know, $150 a gallon. That seems like a pretty good industry to be in, doesn't it? <laughs> Chelsea? <laughs> There's no difference, really. It's ethanol. Ethanol is ethanol. That is interesting. I mean, and especially when you add in the water component and – you know, how precious our water is actually, I mean, compared to the, people don't even realize what they're paying for water, right, when they buy bottled water. So it's <clears throat> kind of funny, the markup on the on the vodka. Yeah, the bottled water, you have to pay for all that transportation cost. Bottle it in Maine, it's your Poland Spring, and then you have to truck it all over the country. You have to pay for all that diesel fuel. Right, or you could fuel it with, with brewery waste. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm personally a tap water guy myself. Poor Magic Hat Beer. Same here. Even in California, I'm not scared of it. I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> it's coming in a bottle. <laughs> well, cool. I think Chelsea might have dropped off the line. Are you still there, Chelsea? See, I think, she's, I think she might have fallen off. Maybe her internet connection... Oh, she's there. Yay. I was making snarky comments about the quality of our drinking water. If you can't chew it, it's not water. <laughs> yeah, I just watched that movie Tapped, which is like half propaganda and but half interesting. <laughs> you know what's what's kind of funny, coincidental about that movie is it's the same producer as the as our movies. Oh, um Eric, I'm sure you know that she um was, you know, in Revenge, or sorry, who killed the electric car and then produced, right? Produced? Small Revenge producer. The electric car? We're small producer, it's, but our real producer is a woman named Jessica. It's only because you're like small in stature, honey. <laughs> you're very kind. No, our real producer is, uh, is Jesse Dieter, and so she, she pr- produced both films and also tapped. Oh, that's great. You know, I haven't seen either movie, but that sounds pretty exciting. Do you like being in the film industry? You know, I moonlight in it, and that's plenty for me. I, I much prefer playing with cars. Well, it must have been funny, right, Chelsea? I mean, I don't think 
in Who Killed the Electric Car, you were out to become a film star, right? Like you were actually just a participant in the whole event of what happened around the EV1. And I'm sure, Eric, you're familiar with the EV1 and, you know, how they crushed the cars in California. And it's kind of funny. I have a a daughter who, when I first started talking to Chelsea, she was like, that was the biggest film star she'd ever heard of. Was that I was talking to Chelsea? We have to get her out more. But no, you're right. And actually, that I we still kid about it because I wasn't originally supposed to be in it. Didn't know I was in it until I went to see it and was a little bit surprised. So so Jesse still teases me to this day about my gullibility when they said to me, "We're only going to use two seconds of your interview." Apparently, the oldest trick in the book. How much did they use? A little more than two seconds. Oh, yeah, a lot. You should see the movie, Eric. Maybe we need to next do the um, let's drink beer and we'll feature Eric for two seconds. Perfect. (laughs) I'm up for that. (laughs) No, beer will definitely happen the next time we are all together. Yeah, you should well, do it I was, a, you know, it's a fun tour because it, you know you might think you're coming to see a brewery and you might think you're coming to see a biogas plant, but you can see both. We walk around on the floor. They've got an awesome sampling room at Magic Hat. They usually have about ten different beers on tap. My favorite right now is Blind Faith. It's an IPA that they just brought back from the dead, and um, and then we can go look at the, the biogas plant and see how bacteria convert the waste into renewable biofuels. I'm shooting a segment up there. We got to do this. I was gonna say we need a field trip. <laughs> I'm in. Open invite. We're actually I'm having in. a tour on the 27th. There's a group of USDA engineers that are coming. I think there's going to be 50 people that are coming for the tour. We're trying to figure out how we can get 50 people to see a presentation at the same time. Because I don't know if we have enough open space for that. Hmm. We have to come from the West Coast. Dan, we should send you as our correspondent. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna head up to the New England Forest Rally in the middle of July, July 15th and 16th. If I could stop on the way up, that would be two birds with one. What am I driving? One that go. Way? Yeah. You'd save fuel. Yeah. That's true. I'd burn tape and save fuel. I would be happy to have you. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Do you have a CNG vehicle? No, 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 no CNG. I, I. Uh, my own. If people always ask, what do I drive? I drive a little Honda, a little Honda two-seater, and uh, you know, one yeah, day I'll get a Yeah, go on. People. It's an S two thousand. Yeah, well, you on, have say it. You have say a BMW it. and a Mustang, so <laughs> <laughs> no teasing. So yeah, one you know, day I'll have I, something that runs an alternative fuel. But next week, I get teased a lot because I'm in the renewable energy space and I drive a full-size pickup, so I'm kind of limited because. I do have three kids, and they're triplets, and you really need, a, like, a, a full-size four-door pickup in order to fit three car seats in the back seat. Um, I used to have a, a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and you just can't get three car seats in a Grand Cherokee. But I also tow a lot, being that I'm a biogas developer. I'm always towing a trailer full of something, you know, whether it be 5,000 pounds of lime or a couple of 3,000-pound air compressors or something like that. So, but, so the, 
you got you need some you need to pull out that E85 and run it in a flex fuel vehicle. Create your own fuel and burn it yourself. And the new Grand Cherokee will burn E85. Um, not sure what else, but it's a good one. That's a real good one. I like that Grand Cherokee, but like I said, it doesn't fit my family. Yeah, so the, well, a, the Durango. Then. then look at the Durango because it's the same. It's, I think it's the same platform, same same flex fuel engine, and that's it's a winner. I drive a four door Dodge pickup, and I love it. It um, on the highway. What diesel coming the engine? No, it's got the it's got the five seven, and mm. uh, on the highway it shuts down four. So if I can if I can keep it under seventy, I get better than twenty miles to the gallon. But if I need it, I got 407 foot pounds of torque. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you're not driving a Suburban with 11 miles per gallon. I'll do it a little bit better than a Suburban. You could convert yeah. that to CNG, though, couldn't you? Yes, you know, I would love to do that. I don't I don't think that I'm the guy that's actually going to produce a, a converted vehicle. Maybe there could be somebody else that converts vehicles to CNG. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go get it. Get, case, it get it done. Man, I would love to participate in that because... I'm going to have as much CNG as I can use. It'd be, it'd be nice to be able to reduce my fuel cost a little bit. I do about 40,000 miles a year. Man, that, that pump starts to rack up some cost. I'll go find some links for you. <laughs> okay, well, I think with that, Chelsea, are we done with our first podcast? I think we are. We have all survived. Eric, I invite you to stay on, on the phone because we will continue this conversation for yet another couple of hours. Um, and you can inter actually interact with some of the people that maybe didn't, weren't like Dan and brave enough to push star six. So um, thank you so much. Eric Fitch from Purpose Energy, making some biofuel out of brewery waste. We really appreciate you being here. Awesome. Well, let me thank you for letting me have the opportunity. I'll tell you what, I'll look for a little bit if there's some questions that come up in, uh, in the next while, and I'll stay on and answer them. Cool. Uh, if you want to go online and um, look at the chat room, see if anybody's asking questions that aren't on the phone, it's bit.ly forward slash open line. And um, there's a whole chat room there that people are, I'm sure, asking questions. And um, thank you. Like this show? There's a whole lot more where this came from. Just join us on the first Tuesday of every month between 8 p.m. and 12 a.m. Eastern Time and dial 1-712-432-0900 with PEN 911-633. Get even more info about this and many other automotive programs at autolinedetroit.tv. Follow me, Michelle Naranjo, at twitter.com slash MissMotormouth or Chelsea Sexton at twitter.com slash EVShells. Until next time, happy motoring. Please hang up now. If you need assistance, dial your operator. This is a recording.